Cindy was 22 when she caught the eye of Ben, 27. They went on two dates, but that was all the time it took to realize that Ben's interest in Cindy was twisted and obsessive. She broke off the relationship. Immediately, Cindy started receiving unwanted emails and texts and calls. She demanded that Ben stop, but instead he became even more obsessed, showing up at her workplace, across the street from her apartment, even at her mom's house. There was no rest for Cindy. Harassment turned to threats when she started dating another man. She obtained a restraining order, but this only enraged Ben further, and his threats became more explicit and began to include photos of her at work, in the gym, at home, out with friends, even grocery shopping. The police arrested Ben, but he was soon free again. Cindy was not. She couldn't live her life in peace. She couldn't sleep. One night, Ben finally acted on his threats and attacked Cindy with a knife, stabbing her multiple times. She survived when a bystander came to her, but Ben escaped on foot. From his hiding place, he continued to terrorize her with electronic and snail mail threats. Jim struggled with substance abuse. Drinking with friends led to gateway drugs, which gave way to full-blown addiction. We get clean for a time, but friends are important and part of life. Whenever Jim fell back in with the group of friends, he eventually fell back into the alcohol and the drugs. Jim longed to be free of his addiction and would experience times of victory, but those times were also very lonely. He missed his friends. At the advice of others, Jim found new friendships, but birds of a feather being what they are, he soon discovered these new friends also liked to party. For a time, he was diligent, on guard, careful, attentive to his addictive behavior, but it was exhausting. Eventually, the need to rest and to relax and just let down his guard led to a relapse. Twice he had to be rushed to the ER to save him from life-threatening overdoses. The dangers to Jim and Cindy's lives differ. Cindy's danger comes wholly from outside of herself. Jim's comes from something within himself. But they share something in common. The dangers arise because of the sin of those around them because of the sin of others. Neither Jim nor Cindy can ever truly rest, truly be at peace, truly be safe, so long as the evils of others are out there. Jesus saves. What does that mean? Jesus saves. What does Jesus save us from? There are actually a lot of correct answers to that in the Scriptures. We've seen a few in the Minor Prophets alone. Amos and Hosea have shown us how Jesus saves us from the wrath of God against sin and sinners. Hosea's marriage to Gomer showed us how Jesus saves us from slavery to sin. Just as he set Gomer free from her sexual enslavement, so Jesus sets us free from our slavery to sin. 
Jesus saves, and there are many things from which he saves us. And one of those are the dangers around us. The dangers that others present to us. In fact, this was rolled into God's covenant with King David. 2 Samuel 7.10, God says to David, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more. After David, Kings Solomon and Asa both when they're talking about how God has done good to the nation of Israel, they both say this. God has granted his people peace on every side. No affliction from those who would do them harm. No threats. The promised rest of God includes rest from the danger posed by others. Whether that danger is... Uh, 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 an internal one like Jim's that is spurred on by others, or whether that danger is entirely external like Cindy's. Either way, true rest, true peace, comes only when those dangers are finally and fully removed. Open your Bibles to Nahum. Nahum chapter 1. <clears throat> We're going to read verses 12 to 15. Nahum 1, verses 12 to 15. We heard the opening of Nahum in our call to worship this morning, and now we're going to consider uh, these four verses from Nahum 1, verses 12 to 15. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength, that is the Ninevites, though they are at full strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for, I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains... The feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Lord, we are weary and tired. There are dangers all around us. Those who want us dead are growing in number. Those who would enable our own sin to consume us have become ever more crafty. Save us, O Lord Jesus, from our enemies. Assure us that peace and safety await us one day. For this we long, for this we pray. Amen. As we consider the book of Nahum today, we are going to spend a few moments introducing Nahum. We're going to then look at kind of the subject matter. What is the book all about? Look at the message that Nahum had for the ancient people of God in Judah. And finally, the message that Nahum has for us today. I'm going to introduce the book. I'm going to look at the subject matter. We're going to consider the message to the ancient people. We're going to consider Nahum's message to us 
today. By means of introduction, we need to look back at verse one, chapter 1, verse 1. Verse, chapter 1, verse 1. It ought to be taken, really, as the title and subtitle to the book of Nahum, and in all likelihood was added later. Here it is. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. There's a lot there. Let's just cover some of the high points quickly. First of all, oracle. Some of the older translations use the word burden. There's an increasing amount of evidence as, as documents come to light and as lexicographers are able to study these things. Probably a better understanding is not the word idea of burden, but the word oracle seems to be a technical term. It's a, really a, a call to war against a foreign power. It's a proclamation of war, a declaration of war against a foreign power. We see there it's an oracle concerning Nineveh. So it's a proclamation of war against Nineveh. Interestingly enough, that is not in the text until chapter 2, verse 8. Nahum has crafted this in such a way that there's tension, there's uncertainty. As you're reading it, you're going, what is this all about? It's not until 2.8 that Nineveh is revealed to us, apart from this title line here. It's formed as a book. This is interesting. You say, well, they're all books, but m most of them were originally sermons. Most of the minor prophets were originally preached sermons that were later put down in writing. Uh, Nahum appears never to have been preached, which in my Christian experience is true in my life. I think I've never heard a sermon on the book of Nahum. Um, it's a book that's never preached, never was preached, never is preached. Nahum was uh, uh, put down in writing from day one. It was not a preached message, but a written message, which, by the way, accounts for the fact that it is considered uh, um, an excellent example of exquisite Hebrew poetry. Robert Loth, who was the, the scholar that really kind of unlocked our modern understanding of Hebrew poetry, says this, None of the minor prophets equal Nahum in boldness, ardor, and sublimity. His prophecy, too, forms a regular and perfect poem. The exordium, that's the opening hymn that we read as our call to worship, is not merely magnificent, it is truly majestic. The preparation for the destruction of Nineveh and the destruction of its downfall and desolation are expressed in the most vivid colors and are bold and luminous in the highest degree. Flip over to Nahum 3, beginning in verse 1. Nahum 3, beginning in verse 1. Let's look quickly at some of the excellence of this poetry. Now, you guys know I'm a math science guy. Poetry's not my thing. But even I can get on board with how amazing and how tightly worded this is. Look at Nahum 3, verses 1 to 3. Woe to the bloody city all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. With those very few words, we're there on the battlefield at the destruction of Nineveh. All that's missing is the neighing of the horses and the metallic smell of the blood. The poetry is amazing and tight and amazingly well-worded because it was written as a book and one can edit and go back over a book. What else do we learn from chapter 1, verse 1? It's the book of the vision of Nahum. Nahum means comforter. Nahum is the Hebrew word for comforter. That is not inconsequential must be kept in mind as we consider this book. 
Finally, it's Nahum of Elkosh. The certainty of where Elkosh is located is lost to history, but there is a long tradition associating it with a village named Alkush. Alkush, if this is a true identification, Alkush is a village about 50 miles north of modern-day Mosul, Iraq, which is across the Tigris River from the ancient city of Nineveh, which would mean that Nahum actually lived in Assyria. He wrote this in Assyria. If that's true, it would explain why this prophecy, we want explanation of why this prophecy was never preached, but was written and sent back to Judah. It also would explain why there's, not like most of the other prophets, there's no comment about who is the king reigning, reigning in Judah, because he doesn't know who the king is reigning in Judah. He's off in Assyria. Here's our quick introduction to the book of Nahum. But it does spur this question, what on earth is an Israelite like Nahum doing in Assyria? Well, that brings us to the next section, the subject of Nahum. If we're going to understand what Nahum's about, we've got to understand a little bit of the history that's happened. About uh, 30 years or so have passed since the last minor prophet wrote. And the last minor prophet was in the Promised Land, in Canaan, in Palestine. So what was going on back there? Well, remember that guys like Hosea and Micah, and we didn't study Isaiah, but Isaiah is a contemporary of Hosea and Micah. These guys were taught, uh, writing during a time of national distress. The Assyrians, of which Nineveh is the capital city, the Assyrians were uh, attacking the people of God. And the northern kingdom of Israel was... Uh, uh, attacked by the Assyrians, and in 722 B.C., it finally, its capital city, Samaria, finally fell to the Assyrians. Sargon II of Assyria captured um, Samaria. It was the Assyrian practice to deport peoples when they conquered a people, take those peoples, move them to some other part of the empire, take peoples from some other part of the empire, and move them to the place that was conquered. This would explain why Nahum is writing from a village north of, uh, of Nineveh. He was part of the diaspora of those Jews that were captured and deported. It also helps us to understand uh, the, the rise of the people known as the Samaritans that play such a crucial role in our understanding of the New Testament. The Assyrians brought other people groups in to Israel. They intermingled and intermarried with the Israelites that were left behind in the land and created these half-breed peoples known as the Samaritans. Meanwhile, in the southern kingdom of Judah, <clears throat> so as Israel falls in 722, then Egypt rises up to try to throw off its Assyrian overlords. And so the Assyrian kings are distracted for a time with Egypt and Babylon and some other places. And they finally get back around to trying to conquer Judah. And in the late 700s, they invade Judah. And there are, uh, I think it's 56 villages and cities that are listed that they conquer. And uh, those, that's in the Assyrian records, many of which are also listed as conquered in the biblical record. But in 701... Um, Sennacherib, uh, the then king, now, the now king of Assyria, comes to the doorstep of Jerusalem, and Hezekiah, who had been in league with Egypt and Babylon, uh, repents. Isaiah and Micah are telling him, "Stop! Give up your your uh, uh, your uh, 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 alliances with these foreign powers and trust Yahweh, your God." Hezekiah finally repents. He prays. And God saves him at the 11th hour and saves uh, Jerusalem 
180,000 Assyrian soldiers die by the hand of the angel of the Lord. It's interesting, Sennacherib himself, when he lists his victories in the Levant, uh, lists all these cities he conquers, when he gets to Jerusalem, he just simply says in the record, and I caged Hezekiah as a bird. I besieged the city, I surrounded it, but I never actually took it confirming the biblical record that he did not actually take Jerusalem. So meanwhile, back in the Holy, in the Holy Land, you've got uh, the, the Judahites are under the Assyrian control. They are a vassal state of Assyria. They're having to pay tribute to Assyria. They're under Syrian power. That's why this word of encouragement is sent back to Judah, so that they would understand what's going on. So the subject of Nahum is really the subject of how God is looking out for his people in the midst of their distress, in the midst of their difficulty. So let's real quickly consider some of the things that Nahum has to say about that. Uh, uh, verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, we just read those a few moments ago, but they talk about the destruction that will come against Nineveh. Uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. That's the second time we've seen a reference to water. Stick that in the back of your head. Its mistress is stripped. Uh, skipping out of verse 8. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Third reference to water. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or the wealth of all precious things. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Skipping down to verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Boy, there's an entire sermon right there. I haven't got time to go into that, but what does it mean to have the Almighty against you? Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in... By the way, Lord of hosts, we sang uh, Mighty Fortress, we sang Lord Sabaoth. Sabaoth, Lord Sabaoth is Lord of hosts. It's the same thing we're seeing here. Uh, I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your uh, messengers shall no longer be heard. If you've got the bulletin insert, you see there a picture of Ashurbanipal, the last strong king of Assyria, and he's holding a lion cub in his arm. The lion was a symbol of the dynasty of Ashurbanipal. And this is where we see the reference here, um, uh, uh, I will devour your young lions. Ashurbanipal, you think you're a lion and your princes are cubs? I'm going to devour them, God says. So what actually happened? What came of all of this? Here we see these prophecies, and I've not even gone into all of them, but we see a summary of some of the prophecies that Nahum gives, some of the subject matter of Nahum against Nineveh. What came of it? Now, first of all, let me set the context in which Nahum gives these prophecies. At the time this is written, we're not exactly sure, somewhere between 663 and 612 B.C., he makes a reference to the, the fall of Thebes in the past tense. Thebes fell in 663, chapter 3, verse 8, I believe it is. And clearly, the destruction of Nineveh is in the future at 612. So somewhere in there, Nahum writes. Now, during most of that time, the king on the throne was this man, Ashurbanipal, whose picture there is in the bulletin insert. He was a strong king. 
And under his reign, Nineveh was uh, uh, the leading city of the world, the largest city by population in the world, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of around a quarter of a million people. Uh, um, a, a wall that in places was as high as 150 feet. Most of it was 100 foot high. And it was wide enough on top of the wall that three chariots could race around the wall. This is a massive wall. That was around the inner city. There were suburbs and things outside of that. That inner city was about 1,800 acres. The palace had 80 rooms. The library of Ashurbanipal was unmatched until uh, the library in Alexandria was established some 400 years later. Ashurbanipal had established an amazing library. Nineveh is an empow- a powerful and mighty city. The leading city on the earth when this is written. But in 627, Ashurbanipal dies. Civil war breaks out among his descendants. The vassal states under their control begin to rise up. And the Medes and the Babylonians and the Scythians and some others come against Nineveh. And we're not exactly sure. The history is a little unclear here. Whether, whether it was just simply a flood or whether the Medes actually engineered and diverted the Tigris River. But one way or another, the Tigris, Tigris River um, came upon the wall of Assyria and under, undercut it, eroded it away so that it collapsed. Hence all the references to water in the prophecy. It was water that undid their defenses. The city collapsed, the Medes invaded, uh, the city was stripped bare and lost to history. It was 1800 AD, 1800 AD, before archaeologists found Nineveh. And interestingly enough, remember we saw there about all the gold and silver being stripped away? Unlike most ancient cities, there's practically no wealth left in the ruins of Nineveh. There's nothing there. It's utterly stripped bare. So the message of the subject of of Nahum is the subject of the destruction of Nineveh, and it is a a destruction that came um, with just a few short years after Nahum preached. So then what is the message of Nahum? What is it telling the Jews? Those who are back in Judah, when they get this letter from this expatriate up in uh, Assyria, What is its meaning? Well, there's certain things we should consider. Look at Nahum uh, 1, verse 3. Nahum 1, verse 3. This is actually a quote of Exodus uh, 34, 6. The Lord is slow to anger. The Lord is slow to anger. Imagine that you are a Judahite, and you are living under the thumb of Assyria, and you have seen constant threat. You've got to be asking yourself, is our God real? Is he really going to free us? Our sister Israel fell, and they had the same God we have. Is our God real? And one of the reminders here is that God is slow to anger. He is patient. Judah, he's been patient with you. Do you not think he ought to be patient with the Ninevites. God is slow to anger, but that does not mean that he's doing nothing. And in fact, God's slowness to anger is an interesting testimony to his common grace, his patience, his forbearance 
the wickedness of mankind. You know, in many sermons on Nineveh, in many sermons on the book of Jonah or the book of Nahum, the two books that deal directly with the city of Nineveh, many commentators, you will hear uh, an extensive description of the wickedness of the Ninevites. And I think there is some value in hearing that. The Ninevites were unusually violent. By the way, I think that has carried through. I actually had an interesting experience as a, as a young man, as a teenager. The summer camp I went to, um, church camp, Christian camp, summer camp I went to, one of the major churches that supported the camp and sent their teens well, had a large population of Assyrian Christians. I mean, how many of us have ever actually known an Assyrian? I actually was friends with, a, with several of them. They're violent, even in their fun. Oh, my goodness. Wow, were those pillow fights. Those were dangerous pillow fights we had with that group. But the, the, there's a testimony in ancient literature of the cruelty of the Assyrians. So that when they conquered you, they didn't just kill you. Oh, they'd kill the common foot soldier out in the field. But the officers and the princes and the kings, they would be put in chains and led back to Nineveh. To be kept alive, to be, to be prisoners of war. No, they'd be marched through the streets of Nineveh in chains, naked, to be humiliated, gathered in the center of the city, sexually assaulted so as to be degraded, and then killed publicly as a spectacle. Many of them by flaying them, skinning them alive. They were unbelievably cruel. Be careful here. There is a temptation when we hear that description to say to ourselves, I'm not like that. I'm better than the Assyrians. Yeah, I get that God's wrath and hell await those kind of people. But I'm not like that. What is my taking of office supplies compared to that? What is my lie to a friend compared to that kind of cruelty? I'm pretty good. That's not the point. That is a misunderstanding of what's being said here. This is not a testimony to how good we are, but what did the text say? God is good. The Lord is good. He is phenomenally patient. We say to ourselves, well, we understand the wrath of God against Hitler, against Stalin, against the Ninevites, but we forget that God was wrathful against Adam for taking a piece of fruit. That's how holy he is. And this is a testimony to how phenomenally patient he is. That he is willing to wait and to wait and to wait and to wait. God is slow to anger. Not because he's incapable or unaware or, or unholy intolerant of sin, but because he is gracious. Neither should we hear a description of the terrible evil of a place like Nineveh and think to ourselves, aha, 
There's the justification for why Nineveh is going to be destroyed. God needs to, as if God needs to be justified. As if the Almighty needs to justify himself to us. As though we are going to stand over him someday in court and say, you know what, you know, you were good, you were okay, God, to take down the Nazis, and you were okay to take down the Ninevites, but you know, you destroyed that one little village with a tsunami, and, and you shouldn't have done that. God does not answer to us for his justice. We answer to him. Why is it that we are ashamed of the violence of God against the violent? Why is it that we are uh, unwilling to talk about the destruction of the destructive? The Bible does not shy away from these qualities of our God. But we do. Turn over to Nahum 3. We read the opening verses. Now we're going to pick up in verse 5. Nahum 3 beginning in verse 5. Nahum 3, beginning in verse 5. For a second time, he says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you. Filth is a common word used for excrement, for bodily waste, and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? You must not forget Those who will not live by the golden rule will suffer by the golden rule. What Nineveh did to her enemies will be done to her because she has not repented despite all of God's waiting. Despite the fact that they once heard the message from Jonah. Despite the fact that there are now Israelites living among them, people like Nahum, who know the truth and are declaring it to them, they will not repent. And therefore, destruction is coming upon them. Extreme wickedness of Nineveh is not needed to justify God's wrath, but rather is a testimony to his forbearance and common grace. You know, Judah wanted Nineveh destroyed yesterday. They are probably impatient, just as we are with our difficulties in life and our enemies. But we all want a God to be patient with us, don't we? And yet we never want him to be patient with our enemies. This is where we live by faith. This is where we trust that God is working these things out. This is why the scriptures tell us not to take vengeance ourselves, but to leave it to the Lord. To Judah, then in ver- back in chapter 1, verse 3b, he says to, uh, uh, to, to them, Yes, God is slow to anger and patient, but he will not leave the, the wicked unpunished. Um, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He says to Judah, listen, it's going to happen. It will, justice will one day prevail. Verse 7, Yahweh is good. There's another whole sermon right there. What is the power of God without his goodness? It's fear and threat and constant living, wondering what's going to fall next. And what is the goodness of God if he has no power? So what if he's a good God if he can't 
do anything or fix anything. Nahum declares both the, the greatness of God's power and the goodness of God's character. And what a comfort that had to be to Judah. Verse 7, part B, uh, Yahweh knows those who take refuge in him. He, this is both a, a, a warning to Judah and an encouragement to them. Hey, you back home in the land, I write to you from Assyria and say, don't worry, if you're trusting in Yahweh, he knows it. He's got you. When he brings condemnation, he will sift through and he will save those who are his. The found are not going to be lost in the deluge. He will save them. He knows who have taken refuge in him. Verse 12, Assyria's might is no match for Yahweh. Though they are, we read this in our, 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 uh, earlier, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Don't worry about it, Judah. I know Assyria looks unconquerable to you. I know Nineveh looks like a city that can never be breached. But don't worry about it. You know, kind of if you sum up the book of Nahum, it was interesting how many different commentators said the same thing about the summary of Nahum. It comes down to this. Yahweh is a warrior God. The God of Judah is a warrior God. He is a God who fights and a God who wins. You know, I think we need a little bit more of that message, don't we? God is relational, to be sure. But if that's the only message we ever proclaim, all of our sermon series is about how God builds relationships, and God wants to have a relationship with you. Where is the, the God who conquers? The God who wins? You know, there's a, every church I've ever been in, there's a decided gender gap. Women outnumber men. I wonder how much of it has to do with we talk a lot about relationship and we don't talk about a God who is a warrior God, who fights and who wins. That's kind of the summary message to the people of Judah. So what does this all mean for us today? How do we bring this home? How does Nahum apply to us? Well, many of the things are direct. They come straight out of the application to Judah. Our God still knows who takes refuge in him. Just as he knew back then, he still does know these things today. And if your hope is in him, you won't be lost in the chaos of what's happening. doesn't mean you won't die in a catastrophe, but you will be saved on the other side of it. <clears throat> and our God is good, just as he was back then. We take that straight from what he said to Judah and we apply it to us today. And our God is slow to anger. But this is where we need to just wait for it. Let it hang there for a moment. Our God is slow to anger. You know, Jim, at the beginning of our sermon, the drug addict, he didn't really need a better relationship with his druggy friend, did he? What he needed was to get those friends out of his life. The key to Jim uh, staying clean was somebody intervening in his life and getting rid of those who were a bad influence on him. 
who were constantly putting him at risk by enabling and fostering his own sinful tendencies. He needed a strong father to step in and sever those relationships where he could not. And Cindy, did she just need to talk things through with Ben? Did she need somebody to sit down and to iron out the relationship with that perverted man? She needed her daddy to come in and beat him up. My dad can beat up your dad. There are times that's exactly what is needed. Oh, it's easy to say, yes, violence is appropriate against them. But we have to realize that our God brings violence against the violent. He brings destruction against the destructive. And Cindy's peace, her rest, her final safety is found only when Ben is completely removed from her life. Our God is kind and he does want a relationship, but when the time comes, in the end, when the time for talk is over, when he has talked and waited patiently for repentance, he's talked some more and waited some more, in the end, the salvation and peace and eternal rest of his people, for that reason, our warrior God will utterly cut off the Ninevites in our lives. True, lasting peace and rest come for those who are in Christ because Jesus saves from those who would do us harm. Jesus saves us from those who would do us harm. Look back at Nahum 1, verse 15. Nahum 1, verse 15. And as you prepare to read with me there, as you prepare to follow along with me there, I'll remind you, what does the word we use in the New Testament and in the world today? We use this word gospel. What does it mean? Good news. Let's read Nahum 1.15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fill your, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The gospel, the good news, includes this message. There is a day of peace and rest coming when the Ninevites of our lives will be utterly cut off. Our God is the King God, the warrior God, who defeats all of his enemies and all of ours. Your God wins. Lord, help us to see the message of Nahum and to see in it encouragement and hope, reasons to cling to you in faith, reasons to wait for you, a reminder that you are the warrior God, and though you are slow to anger, you will one day bring final, lasting peace, a rest where we can rest for good, where we need not worry about the enemies who would harm us from without, and we would need not worry about those who would drag us down from within by our own sin, that all of our enemies will be taken away, and we can rest for eternity. Let us hear in Nahum a message of comfort and a reminder that you are our warrior God who fights for us. We pray this 
In Christ's name.